0: Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. And who is my neighbor? It was all good until that line came out. and Wouldn't you know it came from a lawyer. It was his depends on what the meaning of the word is, is moment and turned into a theological smackdown of biblical proportions. Are you ready? Part four of Parabolic Mirrors is the story of neighboring It's taught by teaching team member David McNeely and covers Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Thank you for joining us today. We are in the middle of a
1: series right now, and that series uh, is called Parabolic Mirrors. And what it's looking at is stories that Jesus told. Jesus was the master storyteller. We all love good storytellers. I think of Paul Harvey. Uh, growing up, I would listen to him on the radio, and without being able to see it, he would somehow or another paint a picture for me that was so clear um, that in my mind's eye, I, I got a view of what was going on. And, and we know this true uh, even now. Sometimes a movie can't even capture what you can imagine when you're reading a book. There's something about a story that engages us, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we identify with characters. We see them. We feel them. We experience them. We know what it's like when this character feels this certain sadness or this triumph or joy or whatever it is. We are there with them. We are engaged. It moves us. It shows us what life could be. It shows us also what life is. It shows us what we would want and what we don't want. There's just something about these stories. Now, Bob Cargo last week talked to us about these parables, and it was a great point he brought out, and so I asked him if they would bring out the same visuals that were here. One of the things that Jesus did was he, t- he shared these stories, these parables in a manner that it was a mirror. And if you are on this front, I apologize. You're having to view yourself the entire service. It's okay. Most of us, we see a mirror. We enjoy a mirror for just a moment. Right, we we want to make sure that we get to a mirror so that I can make sure that my, my tie is straight. Nobody here has a tie. I don't know why I use that illustration. We, we use it. Our zipper is up. We want to make sure that things are okay with us. But we don't want to come to a mirror and just stand for a long time. Because when we do that, we see, oh, my goodness, I, I'm really not that attractive. <laughs> I, I mean, for me, I've got hair in my ears and my nose. It's, I'm getting older. There's just things about that that are uncomfortable. I'm sorry. We don't want to see that particular visual image for very long. Many of us do that in our own personal lives, though, and it's not the physical image that we see, but when Jesus tells a story and it cuts right to the heart of who we are, he puts a mirror up and we get to see who we are. Ooh, we don't like what we see. Many of us have grown up in homes in which the only thing that we were told all the way through was all the things that we did wrong, 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 wrong. And we have viewed ourselves not with a straight mirror like this, which shows us the reality. It does not lie. We have grown up with an image more like a carnival mirror where it's kind of shaded and curved. And, and we have this distorted image of who we are. And we are still paying the price for it as adults. So when Jesus shared a story, it went into the heart of people and they got a chance to look and to see themselves. But fortunately, Jesus didn't leave us just there. The other part of what he was trying to do in the story was to put a window through there. It was not just a mirror that showed us a reflection of ourselves, but it was actually a window by which we could hold up and we could get a good view as to who God is. And we get a chance to see him and his magnificence and his glory, his mercy, his grace, his goodness. We get to see all these things that are true because his word shows us that. Without this mirror, we wouldn't be able to see. Without this window, we would have no hope. So when Jesus shared stories, he used it for a mirror, yes, but he also used it more importantly To get us to the end destination, that was the window by which to see who he is. He's going to do the same thing this morning. Randy, our lead teacher, kicked us off in this series by talking about the story of legitimacy. And the main thrust in that was that true Christians will bear fruit. There was a red light, a yellow light, a green light we had to walk through. Many of us put ourselves in one of those categories there. Real Christians really will bear fruit. Bob Cargo then came and for the last two weeks he's been talking to us on other stories as well. The story of humility and the story of repentance. The story of humility is about Jesus inviting to his banquet those who are humble enough to accept the invitation. The story of repentance is about Jesus saving and hearing the prayers of the repentant, not the self-righteous. This morning we're going to look at a story of neighboring. Now my guess would be, I can't prove this scientifically, I've never seen the research done on this, but I'm going to throw it out there that my guess would be this is the most famous of all of Jesus' stories. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. It's well-known in culture. It's well-known all throughout the globe. But how we view this particular story, I think, will determine a lot for us about how we put this into practice. What ultimately is Jesus trying to get across in there? What does he want us to see here, and what does he want us to see here? So if you have your Bibles, open with me to Luke chapter 10. In the first part of this chapter, Jesus has sent out the 72 disciples that are followers of his and he sent them out with specific instructions and what it is they should do and, and Jesus had very harsh words for those who would not adhere to the message that was being sent out and he later comes out and he talks about those who have knowledge but they don't have wisdom and understanding meaning they know what something says but they are not putting it into practice they return and they return with all kinds of joy over what it is that they could do in the here and now over forces, and Jesus directed their attention towards the better thing to rejoice over, and that was what God does on an eternal basis. Begin reading with me in verse 25. This is perhaps, though, the best understanding of what this story is about. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, The man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil, uh, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? To the man who fell among robbers and he said the one who showed him mercy and Jesus said to him you go and do likewise Jesus is in a scenario it was quite often the scenario for him which he would be teaching and there's a particular man who rises up he stands up that's a sign of respect that he'd be giving to Jesus and he asked Jesus a question what shall I do to inherit eternal life And the question is a great question. We've been asking it from the dawn of time. People are asking it this very morning in this particular building. You probably are asking it in some ways. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a great question to know. When it comes to living eternally, what is necessary? What is required? To not spend any time thinking about that at all, I would suggest to you, would be very, very foolish. So the question is not a bad question. There's only one nuance to it that I think... The man had a misunderstanding right off of the beginning. What must I do? How can I earn it? How can I keep it? What's the maximum that I can do and what's the minimum that I have to do? How is it in my hands? What can I do to improve my situation? What can I do to merit eternal life? And so Jesus... Ask him a question in return. Jesus, knowing that this man is an expert in the law, he is a lawyer. He's not a lawyer in the same sense that you and I know lawyers today. He's a lawyer in the sense that he is an expert in understanding what was written in the Old Testament law itself. He had a pristine understanding of it. He could quote massive amounts of it. You know the law. What do you think it says? Stated this way, Jesus would really be saying, uh, what do you do with that? man gives a great answer. He quotes from both Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and he gives the answer that is the correct answer. In fact, it's the same one that Jesus would teach in other places in the Gospels, and his answer is this. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and you must love your neighbor as yourself. Part A is that you love God always and only. There's never a moment in which you falter from that. You love him with every essence of your being at every second of every day. And the second part of it, which is really an overflow of this, if this is true, then this will happen. The second half of the law is, and you love your neighbor as yourself. You are always and only loving. You never falter. You never tire. You never blow it. You never have a weak moment. It is always loving God, and it is always loving others. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. If you do that, you'll live. Jesus is opening the door wide open for this guy. Jesus has opened it so wide to just say, hey, that's all you have to do, man. And all the guy had to do in response was say, come on, that can't really be the law. Because nobody can do that. There's not a person on the globe who loves God all the time and always always, and never blows it. And there's not a person who always and only loves their neighbor. Nobody does that, Jesus. So tell me, what really is the requirements of the law? Jesus says, you got it. You understand it. And he just steps back and he waits. And during this process of Jesus waiting, the man is thinking. And he's obviously cornered. He obviously has gotten to a place where he knows he can't respond in any manner here that's gonna, gonna be beneficial to him. And, and so then he tries to somehow or another wriggle out of this and he tries now to make himself justified. But look at the scriptures, you know what it says there. Seeking to justify himself, he then asks the question: Who is my neighbor? Can I pause for just a moment? Do you find yourself as often as I do trying to justify yourself? Do you find yourself regularly and consistently? The easiest place for me to see it is with my kids. I know I've blown it with my kids, but, 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 but doggone it, it's about first-time obedience. And I know I've blown it here, but yet, but I'm the dad, and you know what, I got to I find myself trying to justify myself in a variety of ways, in a variety of places. But most often it occurs for me at home with my children and my wife. Do you justify yourself? It comes naturally, you know. And so this man trying to see how it is that he can make himself appear all good. How it is that he can actually pass this test. Rather than seeing the magnitude of the law, rather than seeing the immense impossibility of actually fulfilling this, he tries to justify himself by asking the question well then who is my neighbor? And here's why he asked that question. There were two laws that were written. One was the written law that was from God. It was the command. Love your neighbor. The other was the oral law or the oral tradition. This is inspired by God. Some of this was an understanding correct understanding of God's word but some of it was not and in this the oral tradition they had a very clear definition as to who the neighbor is and the neighbor was someone who was just like you who was trying to live a righteous life and so when it comes to loving God and loving your neighbor all you had to do was love those who are in your inner circle who are headed towards the same thing that you are headed towards So now he's trying to say, Jesus, you tell me who my neighbor is, because I already know, and I want you to confirm what it is I know, and then I can, I'm doing it. Yes. Who is my neighbor? He thinks he's got Jesus. Jesus has just let him walk right into this place where all he had to do was look here. There's a story that I want to tell you. There was a man, the first character that Jesus introduces us to in this story, there was a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He meant that literally and he meant that figuratively. Jerusalem is up here. Jericho is down here. It's about a 17-mile journey in which they would go. Now, on this particular journey, though, this was a place that was dangerous. It's this way to this day. The journey from Jerusalem to Jericho was well known that there were robbers and thieves. and Those who had ill will. That those who had, had bad desires for others, they hung out right here and they waited like a hawk. They waited to find their prey and then they would pounce on them. So the first guy is one who is making an absolutely stupid decision. It's foolish. And there's not a person in the crowd who wouldn't have understood that. He's going alone? Who does that? And on his way down, he introduces us to the next set of characters and those are are those who pounce on him. They pounce on him, they rob him, they strip him, they beat him until he is half dead, and then they leave him alone. So here is a victim, and here are victimizers. The victimizers was those who who, who looked in, they they, they looked in, they saw not a person who was made and created in the image of God, they saw uh, an opportunity for them to gain off of someone else's stupidity. And so they pounce, And with evil intent, they treat him in a manner that is just inhumane. Because he had all of his clothes taken from him, there's no way to identify what group of people he belonged to. So we don't know now who it is that we should be helping. So right now, the lawyer, the expert in the law is knowing, I've got a person down here that's been beaten, and I don't know who they are because their clothes are not there. And so now probably in his mind, he's thinking, since I don't know who he is, he's probably not my neighbor. Victim, victimizers. The victimizers come to steal and to kill and to destroy. But somebody else is coming later to give life. The next character we have is someone who is religious. He is a priest. The priest's responsibility was to offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. There was sin. They were responsible for their choices. And because of the sin, the priest had to go on their behalf and say, God, here is an offering to you. We're sacrificing. There's blood that's been shed. We're asking you to to grant forgiveness. They would also offer prayers of the people. They would go on behalf of the people and intercede because the people couldn't do it for themselves. And so the priest would then go to, so the priest who sees his job is to fight for people who can't fight for themselves, sees the person who is here, knows that they're beaten, knows that they're brutal, knows that bad things have happened, but yet can't identify him and chooses intentionally and willfully. walk to the other side. It's not like he didn't see him. He saw him. He comes over here and he passes on by to get to where he's going. Now, Jesus does not give us the motive or the reason why he chooses to pass by. I will not do that either. The second person that comes there, that comes along and sees the man in this condition is a Levite. Now, a Levite was there to assist the priest. They couldn't offer the sacrifices. They couldn't do the same things, but they are also there in assistance. They are there to help fight four people and he sees him his eyes make contact he knows that the man is there maybe the man is conscious maybe he's not we've given no indication that he's done anything to ask for help he sees him and he turns over maybe he saw the priest do the same thing maybe he didn't whatever he passes on as well and now everyone in the crowd knows about what, what's going to happen Because you've got professional number one and you got professional number two or you got Papa and Junior here that are going along. And these two guys, the ones that were supposed to be paid to do this, they don't do that. And so now what Jesus is gonna do, surely Jesus is gonna bring out that it's gonna be a Jew, one just like us. He's a common man, he's a layman and he's gonna see what needs to be done and he's gonna be the hero of the story. Everybody knows that it comes in threes and so everybody knows that the third person comes along is gonna be the hero. And then the words out of Jesus' mouth said, then a Samaritan. can't imagine that there was anyone in the crowd that, that had any other reaction other than, whoa, did he say Samaritan? It, maybe Jesus is going to do it. Maybe there's a fourth character that's going to come along that will be the hero. That, he, a Samaritan. My favorite theologian, D.A. Carson, had this to say, and I want to read his words first because I thought about trying to explain it to us um, uh, on, on the front end, but I'd rather do it on the back end. There's really nothing that you and I could do in today's day and age to make the same parallel. The Samaritans and the Jews hated one another. So listen to what D.A. Carson makes, the comparison he makes. It's hard to think of what a parallel would be here. Three guys going by. Let's say one is an Anglican bishop, one is a Baptist pastor, and the third chap coming through is the local Muslim imam. But it's the local imam who is the hero of the story. Boy, that really grabs your eyeballs, doesn't it? I think he's dead on accurate in this because what Jesus does not do is make any distinction between the radical Samaritans and the peace-loving Samaritans. Just as there are differences today. Jesus just says, there's a Samaritan who came up and the words stung in the ears, just like if I were to tell you today, it was the local Muslim. Muslim. It was the one who showed kindness rather than the Presbyterian or the Baptist pastor. This Samaritan sees the same thing that the other guy saw. It's the same sight. It's the same scenario. It's the same situation. Everything is the same. And yet his response is this. I love the word that it gives us there. It says that he had compassion The word in the original language is a fantastic word. It does not mean that you are simply moved and stirred emotionally. It means that you are forced to do something about it. You are compelled internally. The compassion inside of him... Could not just look at him as you and I would would perhaps look at some starving children on the television and be moved to tears and yet at the same time be able to walk away. And I'm not saying that we can address every single need in the world. Please don't hear me heaping guilt on you and I for this. But in the same way that we would see someone that has tremendous need and we would be moved, but we would walk away. That's not what the Samaritan did. The Samaritan moved towards the man. He does not move away from him, he moves towards him. He meets him in his aloneness. He reaches out to him in compassion. He just could not handle the thought of this man staying there in that condition. It then says that he poured oil and wine on him. Both of these would be medicinal uses. One would be to cleanse and the other would be to soothe, to provide healing for this. The man comes and he provides healing for this man. It says then that he places this man on his own donkey and he takes him to an inn. But look at this. It says that he spends the night with that man in the inn. So he stayed with that man throughout the night, caring deeply for him. Again, just a a quick interjection. If you have had something in your life, it, an extraordinary amount of pain that has come to you. Maybe it's been the death of a relative or maybe it's been the loss of a dream or whatever it's been and you have had someone that cared so deeply about you, they just came and they showed up and they were just with you. Is that not one of the most healing things that we can experience? Is that not one of the most loving and caring acts that a person can do? Is just to go and to plop themselves with you in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your mess all throughout the night. I don't know what the Samaritan's plans were. I don't know what plans he had to change for the next day. I just know he saw a need. He had compassion. He was moved to action. He brought about healing, and he cared. But look at the last thing that he does. It says that he tells the innkeeper, here is some money. Here's enough to pay for right now. And I want you to know whatever other debt is incurred here, I will come and pay it. I'm coming back. Now, the reason I think Jesus puts that in there is because they don't have the same system of debt paying that you and I have. Just in the last couple of years, Judith and I have had some, um, tr- um, some needs uh, through, the, through the doctor and uh, uh, the hospital, kids, et cetera. You know, we've, um, we've run up some bills. And the hospital has been so gracious. Some of that debt, they just simply forgave. They just wrote it off. It was just them showing compa- uh, kindness and compassion to us. And, and others of that, what they've allowed us to do is to get on a payment plan. It's, it's workable. It's great for us. We're, we're, we're doing fine. They, they have allowed us to make payments along these lines. What could not happen in that day and age, though, was this sort of system. The only recourse that this man could have had if there would have been far more care that was given to him, the only thing the man who was beaten could have done was to sell himself into slavery to the innkeeper until his debt was paid off. And so what the Samaritan does is he pays his debt in full for a man who could never repay him back. Jesus turns the question the original question is will Jesus tell me who my neighbor is so that I can feel good about me Jesus flips it on him and he says this which one of these men was the neighbor see one question for us to ask in this passage is who is my neighbor who is it that I need to minister to who is it that I need to bring grace and mercy to that is one question to ask it's just not the better question The better question to ask is, am I a neighbor? Am I a neighbor who treats people with all of the dignity and the respect because they have been made in the image of God? Am I one who moves towards someone else? Or am I busy trying to figure out who that person is so that I can go on the other side and go away? The man who showed mercy is what the expert said. Wouldn't even call him a Samaritan. Just the one who showed mercy. And then Jesus says, yeah, go. And you do the same. Bring him back to that place. All you got to do, bro, is look. Can you do that? Is that you? Are you that neighbor? And at the same time, Jesus is saying, by the way, there is somebody who can do this. There's somebody who is like this, but it's not him. See, I think what Jesus was getting at, I don't want to over-allegorize the passage. I don't want to go too far down the road saying that the, that the inn is the church and, the, and that the, the priest and the, and the Levite are the law and the prophets. I don't want to go down that road, but I do want to walk a little dangerously on this line of allegorizing it because I want us to see this. I think what Jesus is ultimately getting at is Jesus is the good Samaritan. Jesus is the good Samaritan who heals our hearts and he removes the limits of our love. We all are prone to be exactly like that Levite. I mean, or like, the, like the lawyer. We all are prone to try to figure out how it is that we can limit our love. We all have a natural tendency to place barriers on folks that we're going to love. We place limits on them. And sometimes those limits are racially motivated. I don't want to love someone of this particular nationality or, or ethnicity because I'm afraid. Sometimes those barriers and those limits are placed on someone because of socioeconomic reasons. We know that they can't benefit us in any way. And since they can't really benefit in us in that way, then why am I going to waste my time on Daryl? Because Daryl can't do anything for me. There's a whole lot of reasons why it is, but naturally speaking, you and I gravitate towards trying to limit our love, and what Jesus is getting across to this man is, I am the good Samaritan. And so instead of you and I trying to figure out, am I more like the Samaritan or the priest or the Levite, I think really what we should be doing is seeing that, first of all, we ourselves are the man who is on the road. We have made foolish decisions if we've gone from this place to this place. They have been stupid. We are responsible for our choices. And the evil one, the ultimate deceiver, has pounced on us. He has stripped us. He has beaten us. He has deceived in every way possible. He has left us half dead and we are all alone and there is nothing that we can do. And every other religion of the world all says, you've got to find a way to get up and to make yourself better. But Jesus, the oddball, the one who no one would expect is the one who sees us. And he is the one who has moved with compassion. He sees us in our state. And it's not just that he's moved to tears and says, man, I wish things were different. He has moved to the point of drawing near to us. And he meets us where we are. The scriptures are full of talking about how God does this. Christ comes in in Matthew 9, he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Mark 8, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Luke 7, when the the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and and he said, do not weep. In all of these circumstances, it's Jesus recognizes it and then he does something about it because that's who he is. Christ comes to us in compassion. Christ heals us. Christ is the one who treats our wounds. Psalm 147, three, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Isaiah 53, five, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. First Peter two, four, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. I know today, factually, there are many of us in this room who are in desperate need of healing. Healing. And some of it has to do with the mirror that you've been looking at your whole life. Others of us have been victims. We know exactly what it's like to be that person who is laying literally naked, beaten, abused. We know what it's like to have the victimizers stand over us and then leave. Others of us are victimizers. And we feel the sting in our hearts of knowing that we have taken advantage of others. And Jesus invites both groups to be healed. You can find whatever soothing you want to find out there. You can put whatever medicine you want to put out there. But I'm telling you, there's no healing outside of Jesus. Jesus. Christ takes care of us. Nahum 1.7, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. Philippians 4.19, my God will supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he cares. 1 Peter, which we looked at last summer. 5.7, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Jesus is called the great shepherd of the sheep for a reason. He cares. He moves towards us in compassion because he cares. He treats our wounds because he cares. He sits with us because he cares. But lastly, he also pays our debt in full. He does not pay it in part. He pays it in full. First Timothy 2, 5, and 7, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, That man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a ransom is a consideration or demand that is placed in in return for another. Jesus is the ransom for us, and there is no longer any penalty that's left to to be paid. And in paying the price in full, he rescues us from all slavery, from all eternity. When you and I catch a glimpse first that we are the ones who are on the ground and it's Jesus who comes after us, then we can get this understanding that Jesus is the one who wants to continue doing the ministry. Jesus began it 2,000 years ago when he came down to the earth, but he's still doing it in and through you. And so when you and I understand this whole concept from Philippians, it's Christ in us. It's us in Christ. It's this mystery of I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. I don't understand it. I don't have a great illustration for it. I just know that Christ in me can do something of magnanimous proportions. And he's shown that all throughout history. In the late 1700s and early 1800s, it was Jesus in William Wilberforce who looked out at some people who did not have the same skin that he had, but he saw the dignity of them because they were created in the image of God and he spent his life fighting this evil institution called slavery. 150 years later, it was Jesus in Martin Luther King who helped us as America understand and realize these are people. It was also Jesus And the Reverend Benny Newton, who in 1992, sitting at his home, watching the television, watching as the helicopter who hovered above the L.A. race riots that had resulted as a result of, or come about because of the decision of the Rodney King trial. The helicopter's pointing down, it gets this image. And the Reverend Benny Newton, an African-American pastor, saw what was taking place as a man was pulled out of his truck and began to be beaten savagely. And he ran to the location by the time he had gotten there though there was another african-american truck driver who had already taken him in taken him to the hospital so seeing that there was no longer anyone there he decided to go to a pr- another church where he could pray a peace rally and on his way he sees fidel lopez a latino man who was pulled out of his truck And was beaten brutally. The car stereo was ripped from his his truck and they had used it to bash on his head. He is laying barely conscious, unrecognizable he was stripped of his clothes as young men without thinking they had lost their minds at this moment they were they were taking black spray paint all over his face his chest and even onto his genitals laid there alone with no one to help and the Reverend Benny Newton when he was on his way to a peace meeting sees what's going on and he runs Bible in hand and throws himself on Fidel Lopez and he says if you're going to kill him you'll have to kill me too and as he began to pray, the crowds around understood. Finally, they came to their senses realizing what they were doing was ridiculous. And they dispersed. And Benny Newton, Bible in hand, praying that this man whom he did not know would regain his consciousness. Trying, begging, pleading with anyone around who would help him. No one would help. After coming back to consciousness, Benny Newton Takes him to the hospital, to the emergency room where his life was spared and saved. Just a couple of days later, the mayor of Los Angeles gives Benny Newton a reward. <laughs> but the mayor's name was Tom Bradley. Tom Bradley, 35 years ago, had already met Benny Newton, he was an officer a police officer in the city, and he had come across this young man who was in drug trafficking, who was pimping, and he arrested Benny Newton. And while in prison, Benny Newton came to faith. He heard the message of Jesus and how Jesus changed his people. And he fell in love. And he was changed While he was there in prison, upon getting out of prison, he established a carpet cleaning business that ex-convicts could come in, and and, and ministering to people on a regular basis was just a part of who he was. It was Jesus in Benny that did that. Now, maybe your story is not as public as Martin Luther King, or, or maybe it's not as grand as ending slavery in a, in a country or maybe it's not quite as dramatic as throwing your body on the on, on the on the on, on top of someone else to save them maybe your story is a little more mundane like my wife a year and a half ago I come home and my wife explains to me what had occurred earlier that day and my children had decided that they would go off into another person's yard and our neighbor and this particular neighbor is a very private individual and and, and so my children just gather, and, and at the back of the house, they are just staring inside of this house. All, of, all six of them just. And the man comes running out and just dogs them. It, his speech was yelling, screaming. They were so afraid, all six came home running, trembling. Um, shaking in tears, and he followed him. and my wife goes outside, and when she goes outside, he dogs my wife, and she's sharing the story with me, and I'm not a big man, but I'm ready to go and my, my blood is boiling up inside of me, and, and so I'll go over to his house, and he's not there. He's gone at that particular time, so I go back the next day, and he's not there yet. And I'm back the next hour, and I'm, I'm on a mission to go meet with this man. And when I finally get him, he and I have a very tense conversation. And I promise you, I was ready to go to blows. I was fully prepared. I, I was going fist in hands. And I I did the right thing of protecting my wife and protecting my children. I let them know, hey, if anything like this ever happens again, you come and talk to me. Don't talk to my family in that manner again. I, I did the right thing of protecting my family, but I did it without any love, without any compassion, without any concern for this man's soul. You know what my wife did? She gathered our children. She prayed for our neighbor. She wanted to make certain that our children were not fearful of this man. And so she said, we pray For people and she marched them over to the house knocked on his front door once again apologized to him and then said you just recently had some trees that were cut down do you have any recommendations we've got a tree in the front yard that we need And about a 20 minute conversation ensued then in which there was great love and respect she then took him brownies I I don't like seeing me. Judith was looking up. Would you just ask yourself in closing, are you a Christ-like neighbor? The answer to the first question, who is my neighbor, Jesus gave in a very pristine manner. The person who is our neighbor is any person in need. And the better question to ask is, am I a Christ-like neighbor? Can you say today that you love God always and only with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor always and only, that you have given everything, you don't fall down, you don't slip, you always do it to perfection. If you today can say, yes, I do that, then let me invite you to repent of your self-righteousness. But if today you would say, no, I don't. That's not me. What's true of me is this deeply flawed person who is scared of other races. I do limit my love because others can't return it. I do have an agenda. If that's you, then you're exactly where Jesus wants you to be because he opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So repent and believe that Jesus can cause you to see to move forward, to bring healing, to care. Just join Jesus as he ministers to your neighbors. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for what it is that you have done on our behalf. Lord, we fully acknowledge that we are far more like the man who is on the ground than we are the Samaritan. And so Jesus, we ask that you would help us. Would you do such a significant work in us and through us um, that we would actually be moved to action? Today, Lord, if there has been anything that I have spoken that is not true, I pray that you would erase it from our minds and you would cause us to forget it forever. But whatever words you have spoken to us, I pray that you would bury them so deeply within our souls that we would become doers of your word by the power of your spirit for your glory and your honor rather than just hearers only. We love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name only. Amen.
0: Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia with services Saturday night at 6 and Sunday morning at 9 and 1045. Please visit our website for more information at www.perimeter.org. Be sure to visit the media resources section to give us your feedback and find other messages from our teaching team.